We do. Yeah, we do. Okay, people, so we are live. I don't see here any uh, dedication papers, so uh, I'm just going to do my personal dedication to Razel Bas Miriam and to Sterna uh, Mezani Simcha Bas Sivya, which only have uh, good health and good news in the, uh, in the world. Okay. So. <laughs> So it's a little bit of a long uh, process tonight, so we're going to jump right into it. And the title is In God's Acropolis, Learning How to Balance Out Mood Swings. So let me go through first what the modern day issue is. Modern day issue is something that's, um, yeah, something many of us deal with. So people are gifted with many different emotions so that we can react accordingly to different situations. There's a time for kindness, a time for strictness, a time for uh, joy, a time for uh, sadness, a time for anger actually even. Um, so there's different uh, emotions so that we can react appropriately. The person who's always happy and you know and is making jokes in a shiva house isn't exactly that appropriate. The person who's always sad and you know sitting by a wedding and crying isn't that appropriate. So we have different, uh, different um, emotions. Now, what happens is that often these emotional reactions to different experiences create a mood set. Mood, not mindset, mood set. Today, science understands how certain thoughts create certain neuropath patterns, firing off associative neuropaths, in turn creating chemicals and hormones, which in turn create mood reactions within our very body cells as these chemicals fill their ports. It's as simple as that. So there's always electricity wires firing off in our brain and then we now know, for, thanks to one scientist, that uh, associative patterns, you know, we'll soon see what that is. Uh, I'll just tell you right now, um, as a young child, uh, we were crying and the first thing our parents did uh, was give us to eat. Now we associate food, eating, with calming down, with soothing feelings, because we've learned that those two fire off together food and soothing feelings okay so now what happens is that our brain thoughts actually trigger off different chemicals and the amygdala is the pharmacist so to speak and it will go ahead and create hello and it will go ahead and create these different chemicals and these different chemicals will then go ahead and be delivered to the different body cells literally our body cells opens up ports and that's why, for example, the gazelle has this power at reaction that when it sees, smells, senses a hungry lion, all of a sudden there is certain stress chemicals that is released in the body which takes the gazelle to a higher performance in, 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 in its extremities and it can take off. And that's what happens. So now we know that these certain thoughts create certain chemicals which create certain physiological changes. Now what happens is that when you do this, the gazelle goes through it for 20 minutes. After 20 minutes, the danger is usually over. Either the lion did or didn't catch, but it cannot hunt anymore. So the high stress chemicals are now returning and it goes back to its normal homeostasis. Now, all these thought patterns, that all these uh, chemical releases, these triggers by all creatures are external. Something from the outside triggers them. So even though the horse gets spooked by the slightest, you know, rustle in the, in the bushes, because it thinks that some predator is going to jump out. But a horse doesn't just sit there and all of a sudden start imagining what would happen if a predator jumped out at me and all of a sudden go into the sweats and have a sleepless night. Human beings are the only creatures that have this power of contemplation. This power, I'm sorry about that. No, it's off. Has this power of contemplation where it can actually create non-existing scenarios which to the subconscious becomes so real that all of a sudden these patterns, these neuropath patterns are firing off 
and all of a sudden we're having these chemicals. Now what happens is that when a human being is stressing, not for 20 minutes, but how about for a week or two, or three or four or five or six, a year or two, a decade, under high stress, financial stress, health stress, uh, whatever it may be stress. So it's not 20 minutes and return to its homeostasis, but rather stress becomes the new homeostasis. It's a resetting. Now what happens is within our brain, we have the pharmacist who's consistently checking out the chemicals in the blood. And when it notices a drop of a certain, a certain um, chemical, it will drive the brain to think those thoughts which would create it. And thus you have people who are, their homeostasis is that of high, high stress chemicals. They create chaos when there is no chaos because their body cells are demanding it. And the brain pharmacy picks up that it's lowered in the blood and it's driving it to do it. Now what happens is that when these patterns become habitual, we start getting, and I'm not talking about, you know, real diagnosis of bipolar. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking saying that this will take the place of medicine. I would never do that. But I am saying those that don't have bipolar disorder, but are experiencing mood swings, it's because their brain patterns have become so habitual to go from one extreme to the next extreme. And thus, all of a sudden, there's huge mood swings simply because the mind is creating connections in the brain, which is creating releases of chemicals, which is creating these chemicals in the bloodstream, which is now creating to filling the ports of the cells, and all of a sudden this becomes the new homeostasis. Thus, they're going through consistent mood swings. The question is, what is the spiritual source for this? Everything that exists in the physical world has a spiritual source. What are mood swings coming from in the spiritual source? And what are we going to learn about how to balance them out? Okay? So that's what tonight's class is all about. With that being said, this class is, uh, this lecture is based on a mimer that the Rebbe delivered in 1965, exploring the secrets of the purification process of the commandment that the Red Heifer and of the match that will take place in the Messianic era between the Leviathan and the wild bull. So we're going to explain that, okay? Let's start with the red heifer. So, normally speaking, which are the only Jews that are never allowed to become impure? The Kohen. So just that we understand, impure for this conversation does not mean a sin. For this specific conversation, one of the biggest mitzvahs is to pay our last respects, our last kindness to a person as we bring him to his final resting place. Yet a Kohen cannot do that. Unless the body is in Timbuktu and there's no one else, it becomes what we call a mess mitzvah, and then the Kohen has to do it. Now, the reason why a Kohen can't become impure, simply speaking, is because he has to show up in the temple. And he has to eat from the holy sacrifices. You can't do neither of those when you're impure. Now, the rest of the Jewish people show up in the Holy Temple, commanded to show up in the Holy Temple three times a year. Pesach, Sukkot, and Shavuos. Now, on Pesach, there's the additional commandment that everyone must participate by groups of family into the Passover sacrifice. That is what the Afikomen, until this very day, represents on the Seder plate. Now, to eat from that Passover sacrifice, different laws about uh, purity and purity. Simply speaking, you have to be pure. Therefore, we need to notify people that, guys, Passover is coming. Thus, the Shabbat, before Rosh Chodesh, Nisan, when it's, uh, when it's like this year, Rosh Chodesh on Shabbos, or two weeks before, we go ahead and we read the portion of the red heifer, which is the purification process. It's a seven-day process in which the 
ashes of the red heifer is placed into water in a vessel from which it is sprinkled upon the person on the third day and the seventh day. It's a seven day process to become impure from the deepest impurities. That of, like I mentioned, being in contact with a dead body, either by touching it or by yeah, being in the, under the same roof with it. Okay? So the reason we read it this second Sefer Torah, this week we're going to take our two Sefer Torahs, one Torah scroll, we're going to read the regular cycle of the weekly Torah portion. This week is the portion of Shemini, the third portion in the book of Leviticus, Vayikra. And then the second Sefer Torah is the third in the four portion series. So if you remember, the Shabbat that we blessed the month of Adar, we read a half shekel. The Shabbat before Purim, we read the story of remembering um, Amalek. This week we're going to read the portion of the red cow. And then next week we're going to learn, read about the first mitzvah, which is the mitzvah of the new moon, the Rosh Chodesh. Okay? So, today we're going to talk about just the red heifer. What exactly this is all about. Now I want to share with you a different concept, which seemingly has nothing what to do with what we're talking about. But we're going to talk about it. And you'll see that how much it has in common. So there's a verse in Tehillim chapter 104 that states... This Leviathan you created with which to play. A verse. What is the Leviathan? Leviathan is a huge fish. A huge, 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 gigantic fish. In Kabbalah, it's huge things. In Kabbalah, we're taught that when Mashiach comes, it's going to be a big feast. And what is that feast going to be? What are they going to be serving? Fish and meat. Fish is going to be Leviathan. And the meat's going to come from the Shor Habar, the wild bull. So let me share with you something that the Medrash on our weekly Torah portion says. It describes that there's going to be a match between the wild bull and the Shor Habar. The Medrash describes how the bull will attack and kill the Bilyatan with its horns, while the Leviathan will attack and kill the bull, it will slaughter the bull with its fins. Okay? And that's going to become the meal. Now here's a question. Male of the Leviathan, we know that a, fi that a fish does not need to be slaughtered. It can just be killed. However, the mammals and the birds, the fowl, has to have a certain process of being slaughtered. And that slaughtering is called shechita, the ritual slaughtering. Thus, when we say that the Leviathan is going to kill the Shor Habar, the wild bull, with its fin, it means that it will shecht it. It will, with the fin, do a ritual slaughtering. Which leads the Medrash to a question. What is the question? The question is... Look, I quote to you a Mishnah on page 3. The Gemara says over there, the Gemara Cholin, that talks about the laws of Shechita. It says as follows, it's on the Mishnah. And one may slaughter with any item that cuts, except for the serrated side of the harvest sickle, a saw, and it goes on to list some other stuff. And the issue is that it's not smooth. So, the way you check a knife, till this very day, the way you check a knife is one of two ways. The average person checks it on a nail. My father, my grandfather was a shochet and he did both. He checked it on the nail because the nail will pick up the slightest nick. The nail goes up and down. Okay, you have to be very careful. Because if it touches the skin, you're going to literally split your finger in two. My, own, my grandfather, blessed memory, also, and this was uh, a feat that was done by shochtim that were really, uh, you know, trained, they would check it on their tongue, which is very careful, because if you put the wrong amount of pressure, tongue or knife, and you end up like a snake. So, the point is that there can't be no, absolutely no nicks. Why can't there be a nick? So Rashi tells us, rely on Rashi. Rashi says, because... The knife is called macheles. It needs to eat through. It needs to cut. If you have a nick, that means there's a space between this cut and the cut. So Rashi talks about how it could get hooked on and then it's ripped rather than 
cut, and that's not kosher. Okay? Thus, you have the problem that if a knife is not absolutely smooth, there's a hefsik, there's a space in between, and that makes it not kosher. Okay? Makes now, like what? Makes it like a saw, too. Makes Correct. Saw. Yeah. That's the point. The saw is not a kosher. Right. Now, the fins of the fish is not smooth. So the Medrash asks a question, how can you say that the fin of the Leviathan is going to slaughter the Shor Habar, the wild bull? If it does so, it's not kosher. We won't be permitted, permitted to eat from it. So it learns out from a verse. The verse says, Torah Chadosha Mi'iti Teitzei. It says, and the, let me read the exact verse actually, because that's the teaching of the verse. Isaiah says, concerning the times when Mashiach comes, hearken to me, my people, and my, ma- and my nation, bend your ears to me, when Torah shall emanate from me. Whoa, 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 shell is futuristic. The Torah was already given in the year 2448, which is over 3,300 years ago. And the Torah is only once. God will not be giving the Torah twice. There's only one Mount Sinai and it, and it isn't going to happen again. So what does that verse mean? So the sages learn out from this, this Medrash says that the sages learn out from this that there will be a novelty in the law of slaughtering. That even though today a serrated knife renders the Shechita non-kosher, unfit, Hashem is going to be matir. He's going to make permissible this type of shechita with the Leviathan when Mashiach comes. That's the Medrash. So if I quote it to you, just the Medrash Rabbah by Yikra Rabbah that explains this. Now the question obviously we need to understand is if it's going to be permissible then, why won't it be permissible now? And if it's not permissible now, why will it be permissible then? What was the change that all of a sudden Hashem said, you know what? When Mashiach comes, you'll be able to do such a shechita. But now you can't. We need to understand that. Okay? One more thing, and that is about this week's Torah portion. Okay? So we spoke about the Parah Duma. We spoke about the, the match, literally the match that's going to take place between the Leviathan and the Shor Habar. The big fish and the wild bull, which is going to become the festive meal when Mashiach comes. And now we're going to talk about this week's Torah portion. So this week's Torah portion talks about the which animals are kosher species, which are not kosher species. And then the last verse, let's see the closing of the uh, Torah portion. It says as follows. This is the law regarding animals, birds, all living creatures to distinguish the literal word in the Torah, wahavdil is to separate between the unclean and the clean. Now, Kabbalah and Hasidis see in this closing verse a very important directive. Telling us that the service that we are to do presently with Torah and Mitzvot is all about separating, excuse me, the good from the evil. Now, what does that mean practically? Practically, from a mystical point of view, it means that within every drop of food that you eat, there's a godly spark. The fact that anything exists, whether it be alive, not alive, inanimate, whatever it is, has to have a godly spark. If not, it would not exist. Now, that godly spark is trapped within the food. Because the godly spark from its own right is holy. The animal is kosher. This specific animal we're talking about is kosher was slaughtered kosher, but it's not holy. Thus, whenever we eat, we have a choice. We can either elevate the spark into the Jew who's serving God, or we can, God forbid, descend from being a human being into the animal. Thus, the Baal Shem Tov tells us the famous story. The Baal Shem Tov has a famous story that we're taught, that he was going and he saw his students Together, he was going together with them and they saw through the window someone with a strimo, with a fur hat, dressed up for Shabbos, eating Shabbos meal. And he told the students, join a circle. Join a circle meant that they would all put their hands on each other 
and go into a meditative state, then the Balshanta would complete the circle with his intentions, with his, you remember we spoke last week about unifications, and then what would happen is that from there, they would be able to see what the naked eye can't see. In other words, you're looking at the same thing, but here you only see what the naked eye sees. I only see your body, I don't see your soul. With the Balshamta of taking them to a different dimension, they're able to see what the naked eye didn't see. Huh? The aura, or we're soon going to see what he saw. Over here, what happened was when they, when the Balshanta completed the circle, what they saw was a cow sitting dressed up for Shabbos in a strimal. And they screamed and they let go of the circle. And the Balshanta said, I just showed you what's going on there. Instead of that person thinking about that the meat's going to give him energy, elevate sparks, a blessing before, a blessing afterwards, advar Torah in the middle, sing some Zemiris, and invite a poor person to enjoy it with you. The person sitting and thinking about whether this is medium rare or not medium rare, it's the way I like it, this sauce is a good sauce. So basically, he descended into the animal rather than elevate the animal. Thus, the closing verse of Shemini tells us that everything we do is all about being able to separate the good from the bad. In other words, elevate the spark from its casing. By how? By doing it correctly and doing it in the service of God. Okay? So, now that we got all of these introductions, right? We spoke about mood swings. We spoke about the red heifer, the red cow. We spoke about the match that's going to take place when Mashiach comes between the Leviathan and the wild bull. And we spoke about the closing of this week's Torah portion. Now that we did all of that, let the lecture begin. And the lecture begins by giving a list of different mystical concepts. Okay? So, number one, the secret of the Leviathan versus the wild bull match, part A. Number two, the secret of the Leviathan versus wild bull match, Part B. The third thing we're going to talk about, the secret of the red heifer. What exactly is this all about the red heifer? The fourth thing, the law of the nick knife, now and then. We said it's going to change. Why? And then lastly, attempting to answer the Rebbe's question. So the Rebbe actually left us this week in 1965 with a challenge. The Rebbe, instead of explaining everything, explained everything and then went on to say, but there's one question left, and let all of you work on it. And even if you don't come up with the answer, the mere fact that you're working diligently on studying Torah and understanding deeper secrets, already it's all worthwhile. We're going to attempt to answer the question that the Rebbe asked. Okay? And now let the amazement of Hasidus begin. So, we're going to talk about the secret of Leviathan versus God's Bull, what well, God's bull, Leviathan versus the wild bull, part A. So if you noticed, I named it, um, I named it class, I titled it In God's Acropolis, right? And then the subtitle was Learning How to Balance Out Our Emotions. Now, what exactly did I mean when I say God's Acropolis? So I ended up doing some research on God's Acropolis, uh, on the, what Acropolis was, that in order to understand what pleasure God has, when we say that the Leviathan he created with which to play, so God's gonna have some pleasure from this match, right? There's gonna be the grand match. What exactly is the match? What is the pleasure? We're gonna have to look into what, what the matches the senators enjoyed watching in Acropolis. A lion and a leopard and everyone's cheering. They had people having chained the lion and they had people having chained the leopard and they would control it. In other words, they would loosen the chains of the lion, allowing it to attack. When they saw that the leopard was going to die, they pulled back the lion and released the chains of the leopard, allowing the leopard to attack. And then when the lion, so really if you think about it, what enjoyment was there? The entire enjoyment wasn't, the enjoyment wasn't real. The pleasure wasn't real. It was rigged. I mean, how, we have to allow ourselves to go into a frenzy to enjoy wrestling when it was fake. <laughs> I don't know if it's fake now or not, but when I was a kid, it was fake. They used to bang with the foot and the this and the that, and it was all good. And you know, when you think about it, really? So <laughs> what, what do we... The point being is that this was all rigged. 
If it was rigged and in front of your eyes it's being rigged, they're holding, pulling back, what's everyone cheering? What's everyone? It has nothing to do with the lion's capacity or the leopard's capacity. Thus, we're taught here something in Hasidus and Kabbalah, a pleasure that is induced by an external event is not true, pure pleasure. Let's talk about this for a moment because it's actually the opposite of what we would think. The pleasure of music, the pleasure of hearing a sweet singer, the pleasure of anything of this, it's real pleasure from an external induced cause. Thus this pure pleasure. Why isn't it pure pleasure? It is within the soul of the human being the faculty of pleasure. Now this faculty of pleasure, the way it is within the human being, does not need to be enticed, aroused, or seduced. It simply is the capacity of having pleasure. It does not have to be a from what. Thus, when you have pleasure from music, you're not experiencing the essence faculty of your pleasure. Because this pleasure is not pure. It's being induced, seduced, or whatever by an external factor. It's not your pure power within your soul to just have pleasure. However, when the pleasure is so foolish, it, it isn't even logical to have pleasure from such a match between the Leviathan and the wild bull if you're actually seeing that it's all controlled. It has nothing what to do with the animal's capacities and talents and gifts. Thus that means that the entire pleasure you're having is not really from what you're seeing because that's foolish and you wouldn't have pleasure from that. Rather, when you're having pleasure, it must be from the essence faculty of your pleasure. Jump ahead for a moment. The Leviathan and the Shor Habar, the wild bull, really represents the 248 positive commandments and the 365 prohibitions. Now understand, there is no reason for God to have any pleasure when we do a mitzvah or when we refrain from doing a sin. What logic is there that God should have pleasure from that? What logic is there that God should enjoy when you eat a filter fish with a carrot and crane, but be upset when you eat lobster? What, what is there within God that it makes sense for God to have pleasure when you're going to work for the next month and removing all the chametz from your house and preparing your house? What, where's the logic to it? Thus we understand that the, the pleasure that God has from us doing mitzvahs is equivalent to the pleasure that the Roman senators had when they were watching these rigged bullfights, the rigged fight between the uh, lion and the leopard. So while on one hand the, 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 it's illogical, it's foolish, but precisely because of that, we now know that the pleasure you're having isn't coming from the outside, it's coming from the inside. And you're just letting it go through this because you chose to let it go. But not that this in itself can truly cause you any pleasure. So now we understand that the pleasure that we have from God, from the pleasure that God has from us doing mitzvahs is pure pleasure. Illogical, pure pleasure. Okay? Okay. Now, let's go to the next thing. The secret of the Leviathan versus the wild bull match, part B. So part A we just spoke about, that when Mashiach comes, the whole purpose of having that as kicking off the ceremony is all on a mystical level. It's all because the essence pleasure of God is going to be revealed upon us. Thus, specifically, we talk about something that can only be essence pleasure because in itself it makes no sense. Now let's talk about the second thing. 
And the second thing, I told you before that it refers to the mitzvahs. That's on one level. Let's talk about the second level. Leviathan is a sea creature. The wild bull is a mammal. It's a land creature. Now, let's talk about this for a second. Amongst the righteous, there are two different types of righteous people. There are the mystical righteous, which live their life of doing unifications. In Hebrew, it's called meyached yichudim. You may know the word yichud from a wedding. What is the yichud room? The husband and the wife are alone together. The word yichud means to unite. Now, when you have the unity, the unifications, that's what they do. Now, I want to explain this for a moment. What does it mean, miyachad yichudim? We're not talking about the um. What are we talking about? So to understand what miyachad yichudim means, to make uni to unify unifications, we have to understand a little bit of how the world was created. The way the world was created was that the external of the light shines into the interior of the vessel. From the interior of the vessel shines a ray of that external light, so it's the external of the external, into the external of the vessel. From which only an external of the external of the external shines into the lower realm. Which is why if you look at the, if you want to see the spiritual way of evolution from the higher to the lower, it's like this. Because it's getting contracted, concealed, contracted, concealed. You always keep, you hold in the internal interior, you give forth the exterior. That is exactly what it means according to Kabbalah when you read in the verses of Genesis. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created and a mist ascended from the earth and watered the entire surface of the ground and a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. If you want to know the mystical intention of that, that verse, what it means is that again, the exterior goes forth to the next level, which then goes out, right? Goes out of Eden into a river, splits the four heads. And you keep on reading and what that means mystically. So ultimately speaking, the life force that God gave, the Brit he made with Noah, that I will not mess things up again. I will allow for creation to flow. The Brit that God made with creation was this formula. That will always be the higher contains, contracts, conceals, the lower gets weaker, 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 until the physical can have a spiritual life force. Okay, make sense? That is the norm. However, what is the power of the righteous? The power of the righteous being meyached yehudim is the power of being able to unite not the exterior of the higher with the interior of the lower, but the interior with the interior. Thus, when we speak about the two walls meeting, creating a corner, which is a life force, naturally what it means is exterior kisses exterior, and you have an exterior life force. The power of tzaddikim is that they can bring interior with interior, which gives forth a whole different ballpark. Just that you can understand the difference between these two types of yichudim, the interior to the interior, is two parents creating a child. The exterior to the exterior is the teacher giving just an exterior minuteness of what he knows to the student to be able to absorb it. You see the difference? Here you're giving over essence and here you're giving over an exterior of an exterior. That's what the Leviathan represents. And how is that so? Because the Leviathan's fins are exactly like the bird's wings. And with it, they can fly higher. With it, the way it works is, there's two movements in the wings, there's two movements in the, in the fins. Up and down, forward and backward. And with that, they propel themselves. These two movements in Kabbalah represents two different emotions. 
love and fear. Fear slash awe. When the tzaddik becomes so transparent to the will of God, with a tzaddik's mind, as the Baal Shem Tov says, you're not where you are, you're where your mind is. You can be sitting here and thinking about uh, somewhere else, you're not really here, you're there. So when the tzaddik uses that power, and he uses his emotional passion of love and fear, he brings together, he embodies and becomes the driving force of these two emanations and he brings them together with Pinimiyut because his service is that of interior, filled with passion and emotion and selflessness. The land creature represents the righteous people who do physical mitzvahs, but they're not capable of creating these Yehudim and elevations. Okay? Let's take it to the next step. The word in Hebrew for slaughtering is vishachat. The Gemara is talking about a whole different concept about how do you move the knife and this and that. So again, the Gemara in Chulun, which talks about shechita, explains the opinion. And one of the sages gives a quote of the verse, vishachat, and he says, Ein vishachat elo umoshach. Vishachat means to draw. He draws the knife. No pushing, no pulling. He draws the knife. That's all he does. Now, in Kabbalah, this is huge. In Kabbalah, it's not talking about the movement of the knife. It's talking about the soul and heart of Shechita. The job of Shechita is to take that which is physical and off limits and draw it into the spiritual and permissible. Thus, the shechita makes the animal edible. On a higher level, it creates out of the animal a mitzvah. And the Gemara goes on once, uh, just one uh, teaching the Gemara that goes on to talk about how many mitzvahs you can make out of, out of one cow. You can make a sefer Torah, you can make a tefillin, you can make the shofar, you can make the... Right? So Vishachat makes it all possible. Vishachat draws it up from the physical into spiritual unifications. Now we can understand the mystical secrets of this match that's going to take place in God's Acropolis. What's going to happen is that the tzaddikim, who are the ones that soar, who are the ones that elevate, they're going to do vishachat. They're going to draw up those who can only do physical mitzvahs and don't have the power of spiritual elevation. They're going to draw them up. The Leviathan is going to draw up the wild bull, the wild bull. So the deeper meaning is that what's going to happen when Mashiach comes is that we all, we do physical mitzvahs. But it has our fingerprints, it has ulterior motives, it isn't transparent, it isn't with a true, intense love and fear and awe for God. Thus the mitzvahs are stuck. I mean, we do mitzvahs, but they're stuck. They're not soaring. They're not the bird, bird and they're not the Leviathan. When Mashiach is going to come, then the righteous who are the Leviathans, they're going to Vishachat and draw us all in to the higher level of spiritual unifications. Okay? Now, to be more precise, these two directions of motions, the up and the down, represent the two movements that we consistently have. The verse says, Kiner Hashem Nishmat Adam, the candle of God is the soul of man. And just like the candle, the fire is constantly jumping up and down. It's not like just standing there. So too the soul has the faculties of ebb and flow. The yearning upwards, and the flow downwards. Okay? And now, this leads us into the secret of the red heifer. There's a wording issue with the red heifer. What is the wording issue? It says, Zod chukat ha-Torah. These are the statutes of the Torah. And then it goes on with the, uh, with the commandment. This isn't the statue of the Torah. This is the statue of 
the red cow. Why does it say of Torah, which seems to be saying that this is the statute of the entire Torah? And from here we learn out in Kabbalah Hasidis that the red heifer is the all-encompassing, all-inclusive mitzvah of, all the, of the entire Torah, of which every other mitzvah, of the 612 mitzvot, is just a specific detail of the 613th, in this case, which would be the mitzvah of the red heifer. What about the red heifer makes it the all-encompassing mitzvah? It's because the red heifer has one secret to it. Ebb and flow. What is the ebb and flow? If you learn what you do with the red heifer, the first thing you do after you slaughter it is the saraf, and you burn it. And nothing remains but ashes. The entire, entire red cow is turned into ashes through fire. So we have the element of fire. In what direction will fire always go? Up. No matter how you hold the candle, it's up. Then the verse says that when you purify a person, you will take the ashes and put it into living waters in a vessel. What is the direction that water will always travel? Down. Water, water will always travel down. So you have fire and water, up and down, ebb and flow, love and fear. Water is love, fire is fear. Okay? Now, what is the entire process of the entire Torah mitzvahs? The entire Torah mitzvahs is all about the ebb and flow relationship between us and God and between all of God's creations with its creator. Okay? Thus you have the verse in Deuteronomy talks about all the mitzvahs. From his right hand, the right is kindness and love, was a fiery law. Fire is left, fire is all. Right? Thus we understand that all of Torah mitzvot is to create this ebb and flow relationship with God. Consistently ebb, flow, ebb, flow. We can never just have a one directional relationship. It's always ebb and flow. Okay? Now, we understand why the paraduma, which is all about the ebb and flow, fire and water, is called the all-encompassing mitzvah from which each other mitzvah is only a detail. Because every mitzvah is somehow going to create an ebb and flow relationship between us and God. And now let's go to the next thing. The law of the, prohib the, the, law of the nick knife now and then. Okay? What does a serrated knife mystically represent? A serrated knife has an up and a down. An ebb and a flow. A love and a fear. Right? Therefore, it represents a hefsik, a pause between the ebb and the ebb. Right? So let's watch. There's the ebb, the hefsik, the ebb, the hefsik, the pause. So it's not like a smooth, it's, so what is going on here? So when we talk about in the times of Mashiach, in the times of Mashiach where it's going to be all about Vishachat, to draw up, we know in Kabbalah the rule is that elevations cannot be in one leap and bound. You can never elevate more than you can internalize. So you have to elevate, stop, internalize. Elevate, stop, internalize. Thus Hashem says, for what we need to accomplish when Mashiach comes, we need to have the serrated knife. And thus I'll allow the serrated fin to be a kosher shechita. What's about in our times? So here's the issue. Whenever there's an ebb, a yearning upwards, evil cannot nurture from it. It's intense, it's powerful, it's connecting to God. Whenever there's a flow, that means it's contraction, concealment, come down lower and lower and lower. That's where eventually down the evolution line of concealment and contraction and weakening and exterior from interior, you can eventually get a life force that will feed evil. Evil can nurse from it. 
Because I quoted to you the verse at the end of this week's Torah portion, that it's all about separating the good from the evil, which means we don't want the evil to nurse from the good, thus the flow is dangerous. Thus, if you have ebb, flow, ebb, flow, ebb, flow, in the flow moments, in the descent, in the concealment, in the contraction, you could end up feeding evil. But when you're in a yearn, when you're in a feeling close to, you want to get closer to God, you're not going to fall into the evil, in the darkness. But when you're in this going back down stage, you could do that. Thus, in today's day and age where there is evil, when Mashiach comes, there won't be no more evil. But in today's day and age where there is evil, and our job is to separate the good from the evil, not allowing the evil to nurse from the good, because the life force is always good, thus the serrated knife is not a kosher shrita. Okay? Which leads us to the Rebbe's question. The Rebbe's question is, one second. You just told me before that paraduma is the mitzvah of all mitzvahs. And all mitzvahs is a detail of paraduma. What is the red cow all about? What is serving God all about? Ebb and flow. Fire and water. Love and fear. That means that's what we're supposed to do. And now you're telling me the serrated knife is not kosher because if you have a flow, not just an ebb, you can feed evil. You can allow evil to nurse from goodness. And the whole point is to separate between good and evil. So make up your mind. They're just asking a simple question. What, is, what are we supposed to do? Ebb and flow or not ebb and flow? Here you tell me Torah Mitzvah is all about ebb and flow. And here you tell me that only when Mashiach comes with the ebb and flow knife be kosher. And in today's days it's not kosher. That's the Rebbe's question. Again, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you I have the answer, but I'm going to share with you my thought. My thought is as follows. It's on page 7. When the ebb and the flow are separated, that means ebb is full ebb, flow is full flow, then flow could be dangerous. The whole point of the service of God is to find a place within me which is beyond ebb and flow, from which ebb and flow comes. Thus, by the human, when he serves God, the ebb has the flow and the flow has the ebb, and thus the flow in itself is never dangerous because it has the ebb within it. Practically speaking, what does that mean? That every time I'm ebbing and yearning to get closer to God, my intention is to then come back and physically serve God. So my ebb is driven by the flow. And when I'm flowing, when I'm coming back down to bring divinity into the world, what is my purpose? I'm driven with the intention of the ebb to elevate the world to God. Thus, when the ebb and the flow are not separated, but rather they're married to each other, then within the ebb I'm driven by a flow, and within the flow I'm driven by an ebb, the flow is not dangerous. So when we talk about the serrated knife, we're talking about separating the ebb from the flow. When you do that, when you have a space of ebb and a space of flow, then the flow can be dangerous. The flow in itself can go too down. But when the ebb and the flow are consummated and the ebb is all about to come back and do a spiritual flow and the flow is all about elevating it to an ebb, then the flow is not dangerous. My own thought. Take it for what it's worth. With this but, I want to jump into how to control mood swings. Mystically speaking, our ups comes from the godly soul knowing that it is a divine being, always good, even when dragged into bad environments and bad behaviors. 
Our downs come from our animalistic soul, knowing that it is by definition an arrogant and self-serving creature, even when it does good. So the godly soul is always up. Even when it's down, it doesn't like where we're dragging it, it's still up because it knows that it is pure. The animalistic soul, even when he's caught up in shul, he knows that it's all self-serving and self-centered. It's within his genetics to do that. Thus, on that note, this is where the ups and downs come from. Okay? And that's why the godly soul is always yearning and ebbing upwards, while our animalistic soul is always flowing and descending downwards. And that's why we have the polar opposites. The ups and the downs, basically, is, it's just a question of who are you now channeling, the godly soul or the animalistic soul. However, in order to regulate our mood swings, we must ascend beyond this level of our existence in which we carry a split personality. Rather, we must touch our inner essence depth in which the godly soul descends in order to correct, not just ascends, but also descends, in order to correct, refine, and elevate the animalistic soul. And the animalistic soul ascends into opening itself and sharing its powers of passion and pleasure with the godly soul. Don't separate the two poles. If you separate the two poles, if you separate the ebb from the flow, if when you're in your godly soul, all you have is your godly soul, and when you're in your animalistic soul, all you have is your animalistic soul, you're going to have mood swings. Let's take it to the practically speaking. Practically speaking, we must remember in our down times that we are a divine being having a human experience. It is human to make mistakes, right? What is that Latin thing? It's only human to err. And likewise, in our up times, we must remember that our ups are but for the purpose to make a physical difference in God's world. If in the downs we can remember the ups, we're a godly being, yeah, we had a human experience. And in our up times, we can remember that it's all for the sake of coming down and making a physical difference, helping another person physically, then we can balance our moods. But if we allow those two to separate itself, the ebb from the flow, the love from the fear, the physical from the spiritual, the yearning from the practical, if we separate our divine being from our human sins, and we separate our human necessities from our divine being, then we're going to have ups and downs. If we can remember the other, we won't have ups and downs. In our godly moments, we remember that we're physical. And in our physical moments, we remember that we're godly. We'll be okay. Oh, and so it is. It is very stuffy in here. And I fall asleep when it's stuffy. Is it still going? No, I think there's no connection. It's all oh, it didn't work? No, it didn't work the whole time. Oh,